All right, good morning, familia. Can you please do me a favor? Can you please stand for the reading of God's word? Uh, if you're wondering why is it that we ask you to do this, we simply do this as a reverence to God and his word. Today we're going to be reading from Psalm uh, chapter 73, Psalm 73. And we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Then we're going to read verses 13 and 14, 16 and 17 and verse 25. We're going to put those verses on the screen. If you are with me, please say amen. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishment. When I tried to understand all these, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God, and I'm, then I understood their final destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Lord, I pray that you speak to us this morning. I pray, Lord, that you confront us with the reality of our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you allow us to see the very things that could lead us to self-destruction. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say, you may be seated. So today is part two of a seven-week series that we have called Weapons of Self-Destruction. And I got to be completely honest right from the beginning. This is a painful thing to talk about. So last week we talked about pride. Uh, how many of you guys felt guilty last week? Please raise your hand. Me too. And as I was going through this topic, um, I felt the same thing. So let, the reason why I'm saying that is because we don't want you to leave this place guilty. That's why you got to pay attention to the last point, always. If you don't believe and pay attention to our last point, you will leave this place condemned. But that's not what we want. What we want is for you to see the reality of your heart because I am seeing the reality of my heart. And because we are together in this thing, we all need the same thing. We all need the gospel. Amen? Do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and, and say to that person, if you know the person, if you don't know it, even better. You need the gospel. Go ahead. All right. So last week we talked about pride. And today we are talking. Can I get the title, please? Can I get the title, please? There you go. Envy. So here's a question, because this is family, right? How many of you guys struggle with envy? Please raise your hand. Okay, how many of you guys don't struggle with envy? Please raise your hand. Wait and see. This, is, uh, this topic is, is really, um, I actually find it amazing, because it's one of those things that is, is so subtle that, that sometimes we don't understand or we don't see that we struggle with this. It's not like pride. Like everyone knows that we struggle with this. But what I want you to see is that pride gives birth to this thing that we call envy. 
And the way we're going to uh, talk about this subject is under three um, titles. We could say we're going to talk about uh, the definition of envy. We're going to see if this is a reality in our hearts, exposing envy. And then we're going to see how is it that, what is it that we need to do and believe to kill envy. Not to manage envy, but to kill envy. So let's go with the first point, defining envy. Everything in this text, Psalm 73, which is a, it's a famous passage for many of us, uh, right at the beginning you see why is it that we chose that passage. Because in verse 3, the psalmist here, the person that wrote this psalm says, For I envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now the word envy is an important word, not just because of what it means, but because of what it does. Envy, in reality, it's an emotion. It's a strong emotion. So as I was doing my word study in the Bible, I realized that the word envy, sometimes in the Bible, is translated as the word tormented. It's when you are tormented for something. Actually, when you keep on reading the entire psalm, you realize that there are words that describe what we feel when we feel envy. So, for example, verse 14 uses the word afflicted. In the same verse, he uses the word punished, meaning that when you feel envy, you feel like if someone is punishing you for something. In verse 16, we read the word deeply troubled. We didn't read this verse, but in verse 21, he describes this person that is struggling with envy as someone that is grieved, that is grieving, or is embittered, or has resent, uh, he's, he's being resentful in his spirit. And the reason why I'm explaining all these words is because I want you to get that envy is this strong emotion that has the power to make you feel miserable. Envy is, is, is this emotion that is a controlling emotion. It's not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. It's something that takes over you and makes you feel completely miserable, tormented, afflicted, punished, deeply troubled. It's not just one of the emotions we have. This might be the reason why one of the church fathers in the fourth century described envy as the sickness of the soul, a consuming, wasting spiritual disease that devours people from the inside out. Super interesting because you can struggle with envy and nobody, nobody will notice. It eats you from inside out. So the question we got to ask is, what causes it? Well, the same verse actually answers that question. But pay attention to the second part of this. What caused envy is when this person saw the prosperity of the wicked. Notice here that everything, every envy starts when you start to compare yourself to other people. When you start to see other people, when you feel that you got to compete with other people. Now, we'll be tempted to say, well, maybe this person was struggling because he saw the wicked. But that's not what the verse says. This person might not even care that they're wicked. What he cares about is this word right here. Their prosperity, that's the problem. He's not saying, God, why are they so wicked? 
His struggle is, why is it that they have what I don't have? Why is it, Lord, that they have better than what I do? Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, which is a great book for Christians to read, says that envy is us being afraid that someone is going to become equal to or even superior to us. Thomas Aquinas, the great philosopher and theologian in the 1200s, he said that envy is sorrow for another's good. Aristotle used to say that envy is a disturbing pain excited by the prosperity of others. Doesn't matter if they're wicked or not. It's when we struggle because they have prosperity and we, quote unquote, don't. Joe Rigley, which is a professor of theology in Bethlehem Seminary, says that envy is a distorted and corrupted desire, a perverse comparison of oneself with another, an ungodly preoccupation with the advantages of others, and anger at the blessings of others. Another theologian put it this way. Envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. This is the problem. I love that sentence. The problem is that it's subjective. See, the problem with envy is not that you want people to be miserable like you, but it's that you think that you're miserable. Is that you think that you are successful. You are, you're not successful. Because you are comparing yourself with other people. Envy in reality is a distortion of reality. Envy then is also antisocial. Meaning that envy has the capacity and the power to destroy community and destroy relationships. So there's one important verse that we all got to remember is Romans chapter 12, 15, because it says that in a community of faith, we ought to rejoice with those who rejoice and cry with those that cry, right? Envy flips things around. It cries when others rejoice and rejoice when they cry. Envy is antisocial. Envy messes up our relationship with God and messes up our relationship with others. Envy turns you into a complainer. That's exactly what we see here in this verse. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Which is so ironic because who has a pure heart? And have washed my hands in innocence. It was not worthy. That's what he says. I wasted my time. Isn't that a crazy verse? I wasted my time following God. Envy is the sin of comparing yourself to other people. Envy is when you think that you got to compete with other people. Envy, it's antisocial. Envy turns you into a complainer. Envy is a reality in my heart and it's a reality in your heart. Is the sickness of the soul. How many of you guys struggle with envy? Please raise your hand. Ain't that painful? 
that makes life really complicated. What I realized, at least as I was studying this, is that envy is, is more profound than what I thought it was. And what I said last week when I was preaching on pride is I had to suffer through that study. I had to suffer through this study. And if I suffer, you're going to suffer with me. We have family, man. Weep with those that weep. Let's go with the second point. Exposing envy. And what I want to do here is actually a case study. So you can relax, okay? This is what we're going to do. We're going to look at two different groups. We're going to look at, at, uh, at Adam and Eve first. And then we're going to look at the Israelites. Because I think that when we look at these two groups, we might be able to see some of our struggles and why those struggles are so dangerous. So let me give you a little bit of context first for Adam and Eve here. So everything starts in Genesis chapter 1, right? And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God creates everything beautiful and perfect. There's no sin. Perfect harmony between us and God. Perfect harmony between uh, one another. Perfect harmony between us and creation. Everything is beautiful. In Genesis chapter 2, it's actually when we see that God creates Adam and Eve. And he empowers Adam, Adam and Eve. And he calls them to work and to serve and to take care of this creation. And they had everything they wanted. They didn't need anything at all. They could do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. There was no restrictions except one thing. One restriction, people. One restriction. Out of 20,000 trees... Don't touch this. Don't, don't eat from the fruit of this one. Context. Hundreds of trees. Possibly thousands of trees. Just don't eat this one fruit. Well, Genesis 3 comes into the picture, and this is when we meet the devil for the first time. And he comes into the picture disguised as a serpent. And basically... What he does with Adam and Eve, he says something like this, and I'm paraphrasing. God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he doesn't want you to be like him. Obedience to him is a joy killer. Go ahead and eat. He's keeping you from something. And what you get to see there, and I'll show you a verse in a second, is that he questions, or he invites Adam and Eve to compare themselves to God. Not just to other people, but to compare themselves to God. And he's inviting them to ask the question, what is it that God has that we don't have and we need? Or... What is it that God is keeping us from? And this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw, did you read that word in, in Psalm 73? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And the text says that later on she gave it to her husband. And this is what I want you to see. That envy always becomes a reality when you question the goodness of God. Envy always becomes a reality when you question the goodness of God. 
if God is good, how come he doesn't allow me to eat this fruit? So these are the two questions that I want you to ask today. Is God good? Is God good to me? See, behind everything that we struggle with envy, there's always these two questions. Is God good? Is God good to me? Because if he's good to me, how come I don't get to have that? It's good to me because if he's good, how come I don't have to be as prosperous as they are? If God is so good, how come I don't have what they have? See, envy comes in when you question God's goodness. When you doubt God's goodness. When you're not sure if God has been good to you. It's just a question. That was Satan's lie. He's not that good. He's keeping you from something. He doesn't want to give you what you need. Actually, that, I think that's the reason why we struggle with holiness and obedience to God. In my conversations with people, I realize that people love the concept of God. We love the concept of the love of God. But we struggle with the things that God says that we ought to do. So people have said to me, like, what? Hold on. No sex outside of marriage? Doesn't make any sense to me. He's taking something from me. What? Should I share my money with other people? Doesn't make any sense to me. What? I need to take a day off? Doesn't make any sense to me. And all those questions come because we question whether or not God is good. And the idea here is that if God requests anything of you, it's because he's good. If not, he wouldn't request it from you. This is part of the reason why we, we feel that nothing is ever enough. Actually, this is the reason why we feel that nothing is never, ever good enough. Actually, this is the reason why sometimes we feel, regardless of what we have, we always can find something wrong. That's the sin on envy. You could always find something wrong with who you are and what you have. So years ago, I heard this, um, this preacher talking about this article called Picky, Picky, Picky. I went online and I found it. You can find it online. It's amazing. Um, it, it's a secular article. But this is interesting because he's actually um, trying to answer the question, why is it that people in big cities, in Valentine's, Valentine's Day, they don't have a date? In big cities, right? Um, and, and, and what he realized after doing his little research is that the reason why people don't have a date in Valentine's Day is because they are too picky. Picky, picky, picky. And their demands and expectations of our, re our relationship are so unrealistic that no one is ever good enough. So, for example, he talks about this man that went a, goes on a date. And when he comes back, he says, they ask, how was the date? And he answers, well, it started out great. She opened the door and she looked fantastic, beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine. Until she turned around. And I noticed that she had dirty elbows. So this is what the guy says. 
hearing him, my first instinct was to suggest that there might be some way for the two of them to work it out. Maybe some couples therapy or a little soap and water. But then I realized that that wouldn't matter. He just finds, he will find something else. So describes this other girl. It's a millennial. That was just, that's just what happened in the story. That she says, love is all I have to offer. But I could only offer it to people, to a man that is handsome, successful, over five foot nine, between 29 and 35. Besides that last one, that wouldn't be me, right from the beginning. <laughs> but if I don't have any of that, I cannot give love. Isn't that crazy? You know what I realized? And I hope nobody gets offended, but I hope you get offended. <laughs> that for Christians, it's even worse. Because I think that many of us actually have these kind of prerequisites for any kind of relationship or any kind of events. We have the expectations of the things, the way things are supposed to be. But what makes dating, especially for those of you that are thinking about dating, what makes dating for you so complicated is that you want all of that. You are so picky that you want all of that plus you want a person that is super holy super generous, that serves appointed three times a week, that is part of a life group, serves in the student ministries every week, memorizes the book of Leviticus, spends the summer in Africa, never complains, and you want someone that understands you all the time. Picky, picky, picky. I think that that's true for many of us. I think that's why many times nothing is good enough. Listen to this other author. That makes you look for the fault. That makes you look for the flaw. That makes you reject people. This is the reason why some of us never get married. Or when you get married, you're always unhappy with the one you're married to. to you're married to. This is the reason some of us are so driven in our careers because we hate what we do. This is the reason why some of you can find, uh, can't stand uh, the way you look in a mirror. This is the same reason why many of us have so critical spirits toward other people. This is the reason why some of you can never join a church. This is the reason why you're constantly having a midlife crisis and you're only in your early 20s. This is poisoning your life. You can never sit down and enjoy what is in front of you. You can never sit back and just receive what you have. To one degree or another, we are all suffering from it. Envy is toxic. It always questions the goodness of God. And it's just never enough. Do you struggle with envy? That was Adam and Eve. Now let's talk about Israel. The tribe of Israel, you could say. Let me give you a little bit of context here. This happens, it comes in the book of Numbers, and this happens after God had delivered God's people from the slavery in Egypt. And they're in the desert, and they get hungry, and the Lord has provided for them something that the Bible calls manna. It's kind of a seed that they could use to make bread, kind of a bread, right? And after eating that for a while... This is what happened. Numbers 
uh, Numbers chapter 11. He says that they arrived with them and they began to crave for other food. Now, I want you to see that because they're craving for a food that they had when they were in slavery. They remember the fish they ate, ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, which this one doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> but can't you see what's happening here? God has done these amazing things for them. He delivered them from the slavery of Egypt. God rescued them. God gave them freedom. God gave them food. God sustained them. But because they were craving the very thing they didn't have, they completely ignore what God had already given them. It is the sin of ingratitude. It's when we are so desperate for the things that we don't have that we become ungrateful. These are the two questions that you ought to ask yourself. Am I grateful? Do I appreciate what I have? See, I told you at the beginning that we all struggle with this, and this is me first, right? So I remember a few years ago, I was... Um, Actually, a few years ago, like, like last year, I have this friend, uh, he's a fellow pastor, he pastors in a different city, uh, and we are super close. Uh, I, I, I enjoy spending time with him, we talk about church, doctrine, family, all that stuff. We've done conferences together, I've, I've preached in his church, he has preached at Iglesia, we have a really good relationship, but one day I was... She was going through social media, and I noticed that he was invited to a conference I was not invited to. And my first reaction, because we're part of the same crew, if you will, but my first reaction was like, man, awesome. Like, God is giving him platform to minister to other people. And I kept on going, and then I found another invitation, and I saw his face there. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting, two in a row, wow, praise God. And I kept on going, and I saw another invitation. And then I could almost hear, I, can, I cannot even blame it on the devil. I, I could almost hear me saying, what about me? I mean, we're the same. What, what about me? And then I heard myself saying this, mm, at least I have a bigger church. And he's my friend. And then I realized that I was ignore, completely, completely ignoring everything that the Lord has given me. So ungrateful for what the Lord has already given. You know what's crazy? I don't even like to travel. <laughs> really, I don't. I, I do it because I think it's part of my calling, but I, I don't enjoy that. I don't like to be away from home. But my envy, my secret envy, not only was destroying my relationship with my friend, and he didn't even know it. But I couldn't enjoy everything that I already have. My beautiful wife and my beautiful daughters and the beautiful ministry the Lord has given me because I wanted what I did not have. Envy turns you into an ungrateful people, ungrateful person. 
That's why you got to learn to see your spouse as a gift of God, even if she or he is not the way you think they should be. That's what we call to be grateful for the kids we have, even though they are annoying sometimes. Believe me, they are annoying. That's what we call to be grateful for the career we have, even if it's not your dream career. That's why you got to be careful for the not perfect church you have, because it's a good church. Envy is always looking at somebody else's gifts, and you're never grateful for what you have. It doesn't stop there, though. Because if you continue reading for Israel, look at verse 6. But now, this is the complaint, but now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. You know what's interesting about this passage here? Is that if you read Deuteronomy chapter 8, God actually says there that when God gave them manna, it's because manna was all they needed. All the vitamins they needed was there. All the protein they needed was there. Everything they needed to survive was there. And yet, these people thought that when God gives something, it's not enough. God never, God always gives you what you need. Listen up. And if he doesn't give you something, it's because you don't need it. You know what the problem was with the Israelites? They couldn't trust God. They couldn't trust them. Does he give me what I need? So here's a question for you. Do I trust him? Envy is the sickness of your soul. Is the one that leads you to question God's goodness. Is the one that turns us into ungrateful people. Is the one that helps us not trust the one that gives us what we truly need. How many of you guys struggle with envy? Please raise your hand. That's why we need point three. We're going to learn how to kill this thing. If we don't kill envy, envy is going to kill us. Now, what I find amazing, and this is, this is going to be so amazing, because what I find amazing about this, this, this chapter is that he actually makes it really clear how is it that we kill envy every time it shows up. And it appears in verse, this Psalm 73, verse 17. Look at what it says, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. What I've learned when people quote this verse to me, they usually focus on this part. And they say, well, I know that God is going to take care of the wicked people, so I don't have to. But that's not the focus of the sentence. The main part of the sentence is this part right here, until I enter the sanctuary of God. And what that phrase is calling us is to worship. The way you kill envy is through worship. Because it's only when we worship him that we desire him. It's only when we recognize who God is and what he has done that we stop thinking or desiring other things. He becomes the focus of our attention. This is the problem with desires, people. It's the same problem that we have with all the emotions we have. You cannot get rid of your emotions. You cannot tell yourself, I'm going to stop feeling that. And you do. It doesn't work that way. 
Desires, you could never get rid of your desires. Your desires could only be overpowered by desiring something more. And that's exactly why the Christian church worships. Because when we worship, we are telling him and we are telling us that he is worthy. That he is the center of attention. That only him satisfies our souls. That he is the one that we truly want. That he is worthy of all adoration. That he is the one that fulfills all of our longings. That there is many 20,000 reasons why we ought to trust him. That he is the reason why that we can always trust that he gives us what we need. The more you desire him, the less you're going to desire something else. The less you desire him, the more you, you are going to desire something else. See, there's this tendency... To think that if we worship because God needs it. God doesn't need your worship. He enjoys your worship and he commands you to worship, but he doesn't need it. You do. You are proclaiming with your mouth. And believing in your heart. That he is who he says he is. It is only when we learn to worship with our mind, heart, and soul that we can actually say the same thing that this psalmist says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. You know what the word desire means? To take pleasure. To delight. It's only when we worship that we realize that there's nothing that can satisfy you, satisfy you the way God does. Now, this is the difference between this man and us. That he had a limited understanding of who God is. Because he didn't, he didn't, have, he didn't have Jesus. He had a concept but he didn't have a person, and we do. Do you know why we worship God? Because we have Jesus. We know exactly how God is. Because when we look at Jesus, we look at God. We don't have to guess if God is a God of love. We get to see Jesus and how he loved. You don't have to guess if God cares for the sinner. We have Jesus that shows you that God cares for the sinner. We don't have to guess if God is a God of compassion. We know that God is a God of compassion because Jesus went to the cross. We don't have to guess if God is for us. We know that God is for us because Jesus went to the cross. The only way you kill envy is when you learn to worship the God of the Bible fully displayed in Jesus Christ. It is only when you convince yourself that he's better than anything else. Only then, only then, your desires to be comparing yourself to other people start to lose power. Let me finish with this. This is a modification of uh, one of John Guerra's songs that's ministered to me, especially when I struggle with things like this. Because I remember who Jesus is and why I ought to desire him more than anything else. This is what he says. 
I spend my life looking for the ultimate prize. That's why I keep comparing myself to other people. But I didn't know that I was looking for you. I've come to find the one that I'm looking for. I am the wounded and you are the healer. I am the wayward and you are the seeker. I am the orphan and you are the father. I am the sinner and you are the savior. I am created and you are creator. I am beloved and you are the lover. I've come to find the one that I was looking for. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Do you believe that? Believe it today again. Amen? Will you please stand? Let's pray together. Lord, we worship you today. Not because we need anything from you, but because we have it all in Jesus Christ. Lord, please forgive us every time we desire what we don't have. Please forgive us every time we question your goodness. Please forgive us if we have an ungrateful heart. Please forgive us if we don't trust you. Please forgive us for what you already, when we forget for the things that you have already given us. I pray, Lord, that you give us eyes to see, a mind to understand, and a heart that receives what we already have in Jesus Christ. Lord, and if there's people here that have never surrendered their lives to you, please make it happen today. Allow them, Lord, and help them, Lord, to believe and to repent. That today may be a day of salvation. And for those of us, Lord, that already have or we think we have a relationship with you, that today again may be a day of salvation. We don't have anybody else like you, Lord. We want to desire you more than anything else. Please help us. Please do it by the power of your spirit. And the church says...